Welcome to our Glendale Baptist Church um, Bible study. We are continuing in our studies in the book of Revelation, and specifically, we are in chapter 20, and today we'll begin to unpack verses 7 through 10. Let me read those verses and then just, just give, um, just kind of set up the content that's here. So in Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 7, it says, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophets were. And they will be removed, or they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, this is what has been termed as the final battle. But let me, before we go into the content here. Let me see if this scenario sounds familiar to you. This is pretty much the scenario that I remember growing up with in terms of end times. In the first place, um, there is a secret rapture, and the rapture takes away believers uh, who have not been marked by the beast, and the world remains, and then Jesus comes and reigns on the earth. So with the rapture, people just disappear, and they're supposedly gone to heaven. Jesus now comes to earth and he reigns from the earth. And during this period of his reign, there is still sin, there's still evil, and there's still the opportunity to be saved. This would be the second, I guess, second, second birth, I guess. But in any, any event, during this period, uh, where Jesus reigns on the earth, at the end of the, the this period of his thousand-year reign on the earth, then there is this, or, or as we, you prepare for that, that the end of the, that uh, thousand years, there is an accumulation of animosity towards the church. So all of a sudden, there's this very intentional, very specific antagonism against the church for the sake of the church so churches or christians are taking cover and we are getting ready for this battle and then finally the battle comes and the battle is between good and evil now i know you you're not here present with me but if you uh, hear this and any part part of it sounds familiar just kind of nod your head yeah that sounds familiar and so what I want to do, we've already made the case that the thousand-year reign that's alluded to in the earlier part of this chapter does not refer to an earthly reign of Jesus on the earth. We've examined the various views on uh, how that thousand years will play out. So our understanding, and this is the way, this is the pattern that we're going to work from as we unpack the, the details here, is that the thousand-year reign of Jesus begins with his ascension, and it's this, the entire span of human and redemptive history 
from his ascension until his return. Now, as we look at the final battle, that can be a little misleading. So let's look at some of the details here. And some of it has been confusing for a lot of people. The first thing to note in verse 7, it says, And when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. Um, we've made this point before, and some of this is going to be overlap, and I think that's just necessarily so. The thousand years in which he's restrained does not mean he's not active. And it also doesn't mean that his activity does not include deception. So Satan is deceiving from the time he's been thrown out of heaven. So that doesn't mean that there is no deception and then the deception starts. So we, we want to be clear on that. So obviously the deception is present even during the period of Christ's ascension and until his return. So the thousand years is not unique in the sense, or at the end of the thousand years, it's not unique in the sense that Satan will do at the end of the thousand years something that he hasn't been doing already. So let's, let's remove that. Uh, he is deceiving. We've already looked at the limitations of his deceit. He will not be able to prevent those that God has chosen to receive the gospel message he won't be able to uh, prevent them from receiving the message. He will not be able to destroy the church. He will not be able to disengage us from our embrace of Christ. So those are things that he will not do. And the deception that he will, that will characterize the end of the thousand years is really a greater and a, a broader form of deception that he's already in, that's already in place. He's already doing it, but it'll be more intensified. Now, here's the second thing that, that I think is, is worth noting, and we're going to come back to that deception later. But a second thing to note in the text itself is the expression at the four corners of the earth. That the, Let me go back to the passage itself. He will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. I remember a number of years ago, I had a friend who um, had grown up in the church, and at some point they pushed away, again, uh, pushed away from the church because they felt the Bible wasn't reliable. And one of the reasons uh, that they said it's not a reliable source is because if the earth is round, then how can it have corners? And the simple answer to that is this is simply a for, or a, an expression. This is, this is not taken literally. He is not saying that, um, he's not saying that the earth is square and it has four corners. This is a figure of speech. And the figure of speech, the, uh, it, what it does is it corresponds to the four points on the compass. And the four points on the compass are the four directions that we know. In other words, um, when you think of a compass, you think of the north at one point, one point of the, the compass, south, which is the opposite end, and then east and west. The point that's being made here is that the extent of Satan's deception will be universal. That's the whole point, that 
So it's, it's not trying to make a point about this, the shape of the earth. The point that's being made is that every place within the created order will be affected by the deception that will be spearheaded by Satan, the false prophets, and those who are in league with him. So another way uh, that you could say it is that the deception of Satan, which is going to be universal, corresponds to the same areas or the, the, the universal extent of the church. Just as Christians are called from every tribe, tongue, and nation, so is the deception. So basically what you, what you have is the whole earth will be influenced by the deception of Satan. But out of those same areas, God is calling and gathering his people. So when we talk about the deception, the deception is not just one lie, but it's a pattern of thinking that diverts us away from what we know to be true. The extent of that deception is going to be universal. It will be worldwide. It will be every corner of the earth. And one of the things that uh, and I think it's worth pointing out here, one of the things that helps make these statements, if we understand them properly and understand the, the figures of speech and even the symbols that are employed, one of the things that makes this possible is really our own technology. Uh, we are now able to receive the same messages uh, from in one part of the world. It can now be heard in all parts of the world. So whether that information is true or not, the point is that message reaches a universal audience almost simultaneously. Uh, I was looking at something uh, the other day about uh, a radio app that allows you to listen to radio stations from all across the globe. And so when we think of the deception, it's not gonna be dependent, it's not gonna be regional, and it may not even always be the same deception, and some of that we'll get to in a moment, but it may not even be the same message. But the point is, the distortion of truth is gonna be universal, and it will, some of those messages will be universally dispersed and universally uh, held. And it's in those same areas that people of truth also coexist. Here's the next thing. We are also told that um, in, in, verse, um, in verse eight, it says that um, he, will, he will deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. And then notice this phrase, Gog and Magog. This is another one of those terms, uh, along with Armageddon, that has caused people to misunderstand and mishandle uh, the scriptures in terms of end times events. Now, Gog and Magog, and we've touched on it a little bit, but Gog and Magog are expressions of the from the Old Testament. They're taken from the Old Testament. And specifically, it refers to a particular enemy against the people of God against the nation of Israel, whether it was while they were in exile or whether it was uh, before the period of the exile, we're not really sure because the time and location is not actually clear. But Gog and Magog referenced in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. 
And here's what it, what we know about it. Gog was a person. Gog was the king, and he was an ancient king, and his kingdom was called Magog. That's the area that he ruled. So, is 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 what is 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 John being shown that the Lord is going to raise or reestablish the kingdom of Magog, and there will be someone that will be in the spirit of Gog, and this is uh, these are the enemies of God. No, I think the the point that's being made here is that Gog and Magog are used as a catchphrase. They're used just as a as a term to express the animosity and the antagonism of the enemies of God's people. So they're used in the same way that um, Babylon is used as a catchphrase for the fallen world systems and institutions that support them. So Gog and Magog is not a person and it's not a particular place as it's being referenced here. However, there is something that, that is to be uh, understood why these ind this individual in this place is identified. If you read chapters 38 and 39 of Ezekiel, the Lord will take particular vengeance because of the attack that was experienced by his people at, in, at Magog. And the point is, what the Lord did to Gog and Magog is what he will do to those enemies. And the spirit of the age or the spirit of the antagonism is similar to what the people of God experienced in Magog. So this is really a catchphrase for the collective enemies of God. In the same, um, in, in the same, and in the same um, vein that elsewhere in the Book of Revelation, other individuals are used to as as a catchphrase for a particular um, spirit or a particular, um, really, just the collective evil. So Babylon. God is not going to restore the nation of Babylon to what it was, and then they're going to be what they were in the Old Testament. That misses the point. Babylon is not is, is here used as a phrase to, to capture all of the evil empires. All nations, are, and I've said this before, that all nations are Babylon. And so Gog and Magog is used in the same way, and it's talking about the same group of people. So it's almost as if God is continuing to give the world and its fallenness different nicknames. Uh, but in any ways, um, you notice that in chapter 19, in verses 17 through 18, uh, where it's also speaking of this final conflict, there are no names and of kings or nations that are given. All we are told in chapter 19, verses 17 through 18, is there are kings, the kings of the earth. So Gog and Magog is referring to the kings of the earth that are alluded to in chapter 19. Uh, and more succinctly, in verse 20, we are told that, um, again, rather than giving them specific names, it simply refers to those who have received the mark of the beast and those who have worshipped his image. So Gog and Magog is a catchphrase 
for those who are the enemies of God, signified in political leadership, as well as the populace, all of those who are against God, the truth of God, and the people of God. So that's, that's important. But here's a, a fourth thing. Here's a fourth thing. It's evident from the context that this deception of Satan is what animates and what ultimately unites the kings of the earth and the people against truth. And, and I'm going to use this, this phrase truth because it may not always be against the people of God. This is not the Hatfields and the McCoys. This is not Christians being shielded and then taking fire against non-Christians and all non-Christians are against Christians. That's not what this is about. Um, I keep saying we'll see some of this later, but th the point is the, the content here is, uh, the, the context here is that this deception, this, this assault on truth is what will animate both political forces as well as the common people. So as it unites them, it will cause, it will bring any, it will bring conflict against any Christian or non-Christian that is, res, res, um, that resists and rebels against particular truth. In other words, I would argue that at some points in this conflict, we may be in partnership with others on a particular issue that are not Christians simply because we resist and we rebel against the deception that is being hurled at us. So anyone who is opposed to the deception will receive the animosity that comes from the beast. Now, redemptively, it, it plays out differently. They may still end up, even though they may agree with us on certain, or we may agree with certain unbelievers on particular truth claims that are being challenged, it's not going to redeem them. Let's look at, at, at some of the social issues that are, of, 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 um, that are in the news today. Everyone who's on the same side of a particular social issue does not mean they are Christian. And I've argued this and, and uh, tried to help a lot of uh, people that I know or young groups that, I, that were involved in um, the sanctity of life and anti-abortion movement. And um, one of the things that I've, I've pointed out to them is that we, this is not necessarily just a Christian cause. This is a human cause. And so we should not be afraid of partnering with non-Christians on the sanctity of life. So when we make it a Christian thing, we assume that everyone who is on this side of this particular issue has to be Christian. But that's not the case because the sanctity of life is a human issue. And believe it or not, there are some non-Christians, there are some, some atheists that are also opposed to abortion on demand. So we should be able to partner with people on a particular issue regardless because we're not talking about issues relative to the gospel. They, are, they have no bearings on the content of the gospel message. 
uh, our embrace of the gospel helps us see these issues in a particular way, but they are to be delineated from the content of the gospel message. That being the case, anyone who raises a voice of opposition on a particular issue, whether it's January 6th insurrection, whether it's who won the last uh, presidential election, anyone who stands up against the lie and call it a lie is going to be subject to various forms of attack. So the point is the extent of the extent of, of the deception will be widespread. And the opposition is not Christian versus non-Christian. The opposition is truth versus non-truth. And there will be, because of our embrace of Christ, it puts us in a particular camp as it, re as it relates to standing for truth and standing for what is right. But on some of these issues, some of the people that will also receive the animosity of the forces against us may not be Christian. Here's another thing. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to make that point so clear. You'll notice the way that uh, the opposition is described. In verse 9, it says, And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth. And well, let me back up. Just one other additional statement about the universality and uh, of, of the attack against us. Not only is it described as the four coming from the four corners of the earth, uh, which is where the deception spreads, but also they are described those who are embracing this truth or this falsity are described as numbers like the sand of the sea, which is the same language that we see um, that's given to Abraham, the, the promise to Abraham about his offspring, his offspring will outnumber the sands on the sea. So this tells you that this isn't just a small pocket and this is, uh, this is a universal, and this is universal in, its, in terms of its extent. But in verse nine, it says, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Now, the camp of the saints and the beloved city, this does not refer to a specific geographic location. This does not mean that we are encamped. In fact, there are two, really it gives two descriptions of the people of God. Remember, where, where is the church? The church corresponds to the four corners of the earth because the church are those who are the ecclesia, the called out ones from within the nations and cities in which they live, from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every kingdom. And remember what we also said earlier from um, chapter, I think it was chapter 18, when the Lord tells his people come out of Babylon, he's not summoning them, summonsing them away from one particular geographic region and calling them someplace else. So just as the four corners of the earth 
are figures of speech indicating the widespread of the opposition, the camp of the saints, and the beloved city are simply expressions to talk about or figures of speech that are used to refer to the church. So this is not a geographic region. Now, it's giving you a word, a, a, a word picture. It's intended to paint a picture for you to see visually. And so, but don't confuse the word picture with the reality. Because the reality is if the church being as universal as it is, widespread from every part of the earth, if we are gathered in one camp, if we are made to be one city, that would be physically impossible. Now, the way some people have taken this, or the way some people view it, I should say, is that it corresponds to a particular city-state or nation-state. And this is part of the uh, confusion that a lot of American Christians have, that this is us. And they all, and I remember back in the 80s and the 70s that Armaged or Gog and Magog and the beasts from the East and all of that, that it referred to the Soviet Union. So it's as if all of history boils down to what happens between these nation states. The beloved city is not a geopolitical entity. The camp of the saints is not a geographic region. This, these are figures of speech to speak, uh, to, to indicate the people of God gathered, the called out ones of God. So this, this can't be a geographic location because the way we would see it now, of course, maybe it, it, it goes hand in hand with the view of Jesus reigning on the earth 4,000 years from a particular place. And that's the way um, some post-millennials believe it, that Jesus will reign, and especially in the dispensational view, that Jesus will reign from the earth in the Middle East, somewhere in the Middle East. And I guess that would mean all of the world would be against that one particular region in the Middle East. I mean, that's not good television, and it's even worse theology. Jesus is not going to reign on the earth from one particular place. Jesus reigns over the earth. The whole point of Revelation, it launches with us being told that he presently reigns from heaven, and he is the ruler over all of the kings of the earth. So it just doesn't make sense that the camp of the saints is one particular place where all Christians all over the world are in this one camp. And if you're not in the camp, then you're not a Christian. Or if you're not a part of the beloved city, which is a geographic region, if that's the way you're seeing it, then you must not be a Christian. That's not, it's not consistent with the rest of what we know in scripture. The point is, the point that's being made is that there will be universal persecution against the saints, against truth, and the saints will be included in that assault on truth. And there will be particular attacks against the saints. 
And at that point, we will be will be set apart from even those who are co-laborers for other matters of truth. But because they do not embrace Christ as we do, there were they may be exempt from some of those things. Here's the next thing. So we we hopefully we're clear that this is the, the camp and the beloved city are not geographic regions. You'll notice both in chapter 19, verses 11 through 19, and in chapter 20 and verse 9, that there is no actual conflict. In other words, uh, or between the saints and uh, the animated uh, forces of, of Satan. There's no actual conflict. Let's go back to chapter 19. And beginning in verse 11, it says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges, and he makes war. His eyes are like a, faith, are, are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the, the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name that is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now look at what happens. So you see this scene where he's ready for battle and he has the sword, Christ, and it's obviously referring to Christ. And it says, and the angels or the, the saints are with him. His army is arrayed in, in linen, of uh, white linen. And then notice what happens. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come and gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men with their armies uh, are both free and, and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And he was captured, and with it, the false prophet who was, uh, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And those two were thrown into the uh, uh, thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged on their flesh. Notice what's missing? Not once does it show the saints engaged in conflict. 
we see that what is released by way of imagery, I think this refers to angelic beings rather than actual saints fighting against the enemy. Birds of prey come and devour the enemies. And Christ, the one who rules, the king of kings, conquers them and throws them into the fire. Look at chapter 20 and in verse 9. It says in verse 9, And they marched up, and fire came down from heaven. Now notice the scene, what you're prepared for, because it says that all of these enemies, they surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. And as they surround them, you are prepared for warfare. And like I said in the opening, how many of us have seen these pictures or these horrible end times movies where Christians are behind closed doors and they are fighting it out against the forces that be almost like some sort of zombie apocalypse or whatever. But in any event, here's what we see. We, we see that they are surrounded, yes, but it says, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And then following what we just saw from chapter 19, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Here's the point. Even though everything the scene is set, is set to show us visually the nature and the extent of the opposition. The scene is set for final conflict. And that's one of the reasons the saints are portrayed as being in a camp and being in a city. And so what you can see in your eye, in your in your mind's eye, you can see the enemy surrounding the city, waiting to come and besiege it and take over. But instead of a conflict, a final conflict, where they either break through or those who are encamped in the city are able to hold the fort until the, the, the captain comes. No, what we see in both instances, that God through Christ is the one who is victorious. And so there is no final conflict in the way that we are expecting a final conflict where we will engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat or fighting it out. Because remember, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. And the fight that we're fighting, even though there will be physical persecution, the fight that we're fighting is not a physical fight. Now in our next session, I'm gonna just kind of go back over some of these things and kind of flesh it out a little more. Um, but hopefully what we've been able to do is just kind of lay on the table the fact that some of what we may be accustomed to, to reading and hearing about end times events, it, maybe it's because we have not understood the overarching message and we've been lost in some of the imagery and we've taken some things literally that are intended to convey a literal message by using symbols and figures of speech. 
The bottom line is the deception, and we're going to open that up in greater detail, but the deception and the conflict because of the uh, deception is a universal reality. And the people of God, even though Satan will be released where he will have greater impact on others, he still has no ability, no greater ability against the saints. I'm going to end our lesson here for today. And in our next session, what we'll do is pick up and go into a little more detail because I, I want to save probably for two weeks uh, going into the actual final judgment. And because we're going to be tying together some uh, portions from, from Revelation and other places where we've seen the final judgment introduced. And now we're going to kind of bring all those together to see how it plays out in this final uh, vision of conflict and conquest. I hope this has been helpful. And uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Gracious God, we do again thank you for your word and we thank you for the reminder that we as your people are preserved by your grace and your power. We thank you that your covenant with us, which has been ratified by the blood of Christ, protects us and it keeps us from all harm and all danger. There is nothing that has been secured by his blood that can be removed or destroyed. We know that uh, we live in a fallen world and as such that we are subject to attack and mis being misunderstood and even persecuted because of our embrace of your truth, not just our moral transformation, but just the embrace of your truth and how life is and how life is to be lived. We pray that our sources are always grounded in you that our interpretation of the world and around us and even our place in it is according to what you have revealed and not according to the standards of the world. Strengthen us, strengthen us now in your truth that we would be faithful witnesses of that truth both now and in the days that are to come. We do echo the sentiments of the early church as we see so many things taking place around us Come, Lord Jesus, come. We do thank you for the comforts of your grace, and we thank you for the triumph of the Lamb, and we pray that we would stand boldly in it. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.